On this episode of China Unscripted, Russia's invasion of Ukraine shook the world. Is this the beginning of a Russia-China alliance? And is the U.S. military ready? Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And joining us today is retired Navy Commander Paul Giara. He managed the U.S.-Japan alliance for the Office of the Secretary of Defense and helped create the global strategy for the U.S. Navy at the end of the Cold War. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's nice to be here with you, Chris and Matt and Shelley. So obviously there's a lot of military attention right now on everything that's happening with Russia and Ukraine. But uh, I remember last year there was a, a RAND analysis that said even though the Russia threat is more immediate, uh, long term, China is the bigger threat. Uh, what do you think about that? Uh, as far as that statement goes, I think that's correct. However, I think it's going to become increasingly clear going forward that you can't separate the two. Mm-hmm. It's not as if you have a, a different situation going on in Europe that has no connections to relevance to and importance for things going on in Asia with China. The $64,000 question is to what extent uh, Putin and Xi have already been colluding and, and to what lengths they'll go in the future. So that's probably the single greatest geopolitical question right now. Yeah. So it's so like a little bit of a war in Europe, a little bit of a war in China, kind of like, you know, a world war, kind of. Kind of. Right. Kind of. But so this is very interesting. Like there is the possibility, like a, like warfare in Europe with Russia, that's going to be a very different theater than a hypothetical war in the Indo-Pacific, which would largely be a naval conflict, I'd imagine. Uh, how can the U.S. manage these two very different theaters of war? Um, I wouldn't highlight the differences quite so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, I think that um, the Navy is relevant to both. I think the Navy, when operated properly, unlike today, uh, is global and it's it's centrally controlled. But I think that whatever happens in the Asia-Pacific is going to have a lot of land going on, as they say. Uh, that uh, Because after all, if you take the point that we're back in a Cold War, that American grand strategy is to prevent the domination of Eurasia by a, a single antithetical power or coalition, Eventually, it's about land. And in the Asia-Pacific, there's maritime geography um, that is the islands, the littorals, the capes, the headlands, uh, and so on, uh, that are going to have to be controlled. Um, This is nothing new. It's it's a a page from the past. Um, I don't think our land element, the Marines and the Army have quite woken up to what that is going to be. The Marines are heading off in a direction that I think is misguided uh, because I, I don't think they're taking into account um, the resistance and the uh, response they're going to get from China uh, in those littorals. Now, you said you think the way the Navy is managed today is, is not good and you're also talking about problems with the marines uh what what are these problems and what would need to change um 
I attended the um, the confirmation hearings in the Senate Armed Services Committee for Admiral Kelso when he uh, in 1990, I think it was, when he was getting ready to step up to be the chief of naval operations. And John McCain uh, tossed him a, a softball pitch. It was, do we need a maritime strategy? Now, mind you, I was in the Navy Maritime Strategy Office at the time, so I, I uh, put on my best bib and tucker and went over to Capitol Hill. Senator asked the admiral, do we need a maritime strategy? And essentially, the admiral said, no. So since then, for all intents and purposes, despite numbers of attempts, uh, the Navy hasn't had a maritime strategy. It's tried to play catch up uh, uh, during the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq with the other uh, services. It's provided offshore air power, uh, but never challenged in any way. It's gotten used to that. Uh, And... um, Almost stubbornly, the subsequent CNOs have insisted that somehow the Goldwater-Nichols legislation has basically told them they're not in charge of strategy anymore. Don't worry about it. That's somebody else's job. Well, well go ahead. I mean, one so one reason that they might not have a strategy is they don't have a clear goal. Would that be... Well, you can't, you, you can't separate out strategies from goals. Right. right. So, I mean, what, what's the goal that that we have or, or should have in the region? And, and how does that intersect with what our strategy ought to be? Maritime power is the greatest single determinant, determinant of geopolitics. If you start from that proposition and work forward, you realize that everything that happens ashore or at sea is going to depend upon the Navy. Now, I'm a navalist, so, you know, I can be criticized for being single-minded about this. But even the Duke of Wellington, after the Napoleonic Wars were finished, said something to the effect of, yeah, I owe it all to the Royal Navy, because without which I couldn't have done what I did in Portugal, Spain, and eventually uh, in at Waterloo. Right. But I mean, this is the 21st century and we have airplanes and such means of tra- trains and other means of transportation. So so why is maritime power still so important? I mean, you launch a lot of those planes off of a ship. <laughs> uh, because every first, everything moves, almost everything moves by sea. That's the first thing. And a great element of this is to first and foremost dominate the trade routes. So number one, you can use them uh, for trade. And number two, you can deny their use to your enemy. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the maritime approaches to Eurasia uh, determine uh, the ability to focus uh, from the outside military, economic, uh, and political power on Eurasia. If you can't get there, you can't do anything about it. Uh, so those are two of the reasons why it's still relevant. There, let me let me frame this in, in a slightly different way. There are some things that change. Air power is one of them. Uh, a century ago, air power was almost hardly thought of. Uh, it, it took it took off, pun intended, uh, 
during the First World War in its military uses and then commercially as well subsequently. But other things don't. And one of the things that doesn't is this, this, uh, import, this central importance of maritime power. Now, I'm not here to tell you that the Navy can do this by itself, just despite the fact that, as we joke, the Navy has its own Army and Air Force. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean to say that at all. But uh, maritime power is uh, the shadow of maritime power is American diplomacy. Uh, and um, the credence in the minds of allies and enemies uh, starts with where our Navy is and what our Navy can do. So this doesn't have to be a conversation about the Navy, but I think it's a pretty good starting point for what's happening and what's, what might happen and also what should happen. Well, I'm curious because you shaped a lot of U.S. naval strategy uh, for years, but do you think uh, like your advice is being followed? It doesn't seem like there is as much focus on the Indo-Pacific or the prominence of the Navy in U.S. military power. Um, I disagree with you on the first supposition that there's no focus on the Indo-Pacific. Sorry, I meant over the past couple of decades. That has changed? Yes, I think so. Uh, I think that over time, but too little too late in my view, Mm -hmm. um, attention in the Pentagon broadly and in the Navy specifically has shifted to the uh, the Asia Pacific first, and now the, the so-called Indo-Pacific, and that's okay rhetorically, and it's good that I presume, because I certainly don't have any insight into this, that naval planners are thinking about that, and they're thinking about the Chinese Navy and so on. But there's in history, including our own. There's virtually no example of the of the build, naval buildup that we're seeing now with the PLA Navy, and we can't keep our ships painted. Really, really. So there's been no uh, congruent uh, response. So rhetorically, oh, the the focus on the Indo-Pacific. That's all well and good. But in reality, in terms of certainly in terms of force structure, and and this is an important point in terms of stated maritime strategy, whatever exists behind the closed doors, that's one thing. My view is and always has been that it needs to be public. It needs to be publicized that we need to understand it here so that we can decide on whether or not to fund the Navy. But Beijing and Tokyo and Delhi and Moscow and and Brussels need to understand also. And there's been no bump up. So right now the Navy is concentrated on building the new uh, strategic missile submarine, the Columbia class. That's, that's important. That's necessary. But when it comes time, and this happens over and over again, this has been going on for decades, unlike earlier periods in our history, when the Congress asks the Navy what it wants and needs, it doesn't tell them. Why is that? uh, um, I think part of it, well, first of all, I don't know. I mean, the honest answer, Shelley, is it's inexplainable. Hmm. Because 
any right-minded military officer, Navy or otherwise, should be able to say at the drop of a hat, entering the elevator, well, sir, I think what we need is X, Y, and Z. Now, I don't think that everybody should have to make that up. I think that that elevator speech and the briefings and the uh, visits to the country and the visits to Capitol Hill should be carefully and thoughtfully orchestrated centrally. But as I said, because of the, in my view, misinterpretation of Goldwater Nichols, the Navy has stopped doing that. Can you explain Goldwater Nichols to us? So um, after some of the late Cold War uh, uh, military interventions, if you, you remember Grenada, uh, there were officers who were relegated to making uh, credit card phone calls back to the Pentagon to pass information, things like that. So it was pretty clear to everybody who was watching that the military hadn't gotten together so that they could talk to one another. And by the way, that's not necessarily um, well, um, well resolved. But uh, so at, at that point, the Congress decided, and what the Congress decides pretty much goes, that, the, that there needed to be a new organizational scheme for the US military with an emphasis on what's called jointness, with forcing, ostensibly forcing the different services to operate together uh, from the same sheet of music, so to speak. Well, one of the things that happened when that occurred was, number one, uh, a lot of planning authority um, um, elevated to the Joint Staff and to the Office of the Secretary of Defense from the military services. So after Goldwater Nichols, it took a while for this to settle in, but um, the Navy was, in, while I was in, in the strategy office, the Navy was less and less in charge of and less and less involved in, less and less enthusiastic about, and less and less prepared to produce a strategy. So about 10 years ago, excuse me, about 10 years before I got to the Pentagon in, in the summer of 1988, the Navy took off like a rocket in terms of strategy. This was the period of post-Vietnam doldrums and completely unbidden, uh, Admiral Tom Hayward, who at the time was passing through um, the Pacific Fleet, excuse me, the Seventh Fleet to become the Pacific Fleet Commander. He just passed away uh, yesterday or the day before, unfortunately. He was a remarkable guy. He was apparently uh, a Mercury astronaut number eight or nine, something like that. So he never got into the space program. So I guess he must have decided, well, I guess I'll make the Navy, I'll make something of my Navy career. And he did. And he when he was first, um, as a flag officer, as a as relatively junior admiral, when he was first exposed to the war plans, which at the time were, in retrospect, pretty awful. 
he said, no, there's got to be a better way. So there were two things, major things that he was responding to. He was responding, number one, to the fact that everyone presumed that within a day at the most, the war, any war with the Soviet Union was going to go nuclear. And therefore, it it uh, relegated conventional war planning to a, very much of a peripheral enterprise. Um, the second was that essentially the way the Navy was going to be used was to not just the Navy, but everything in the Pacific was going to swing to the Atlantic. And somehow they were going to ensure in some way un, unexpressed that everything that needed to get to Europe would get to Europe and somehow that was going to work out. But that's not much of a strategy. And the Admiral said, no, there are better ways to do that. So he came up with, he was the progenitor of the famous 1980s maritime strategy. The, the point I'm trying to make is that at that time, he and his successors, and he became the chief of naval operations in 1978. At that time, the Navy strategic planning enterprise was managed by a three-star admiral. Admiral Moreau took under his wing um, bright young officers. He made sure they had successive strategic planning assignments. Uh, he made sure they got promoted and so on. By the time I got to the office uh, in 1988, that same strategic planning community was being managed by a lieutenant commander. So that's an, o, an 04 versus an 09. And, you know, the, the, that reflects the kind of attention the Navy had given the maritime strategy and maritime strategic planning and so on in the ensuing years, during which there was a tremendous uh, uh, success of maritime planning. So Admiral Hayward started the whole notion, which doesn't exist today, of horizontal escalation. So instead of swinging to, to Europe, the Navy and the other services would stay in the Pacific and threaten um, the Soviet Far East forces, keep them in place so that they couldn't pass across through the continent and reinforce any war that broke out in Europe. Um, it kept Japan in, and it, uh, in my view, it served to bring China in uh, on our side. This was a profound strategic planning success. Goldwater Nichols, to get back to the point, undid all of that. It had something that was really working, and Goldwater Nichols said, well, let me fiddle with this, please. And now the, the Navy strategic planning is a mere shadow, a, a relic, really of its former self. Now, just to advertise, apparently the Navy's getting ready, preparing for some sort of foreign affairs magazine, maritime strategy article in the next couple of months. We'll see. I've lost patience and faith that it will amount to anything that will either influence things in this country or influence uh, other countries. So that's where Goldwater Nichols fits into all this, in my view, it, it, it undid the strategic planning enterprise. In addition to that, what it said was, we're going to center operational responsibility uh, and, and command and control 
in the regional combatant commanders. So what that meant was, whereas the chief of naval operations used to control the Navy as, a, as an aggregate whole, now the Navy is controlled uh, by the commander in Europe, by the commander in the Mideast, by the commander in the Indo-Pacific, and so on. It's an, and it's no longer controlled centrally. Well, you know, a, a horse with, there's an old saying, a ho- it may even be a Chinese saying, let's, let's say it was a Chinese saying, a horse with two owners grows thin, right? That's one of the reasons why operationally uh, the Navy can't paint its ships. It's being run ragged. So there were decisions made back then Uh, more than 25 years ago uh, that are playing out today and not to our benefit, in fact, to our detriment. I mean, we are now facing a much bigger and more immediate threat from the Chinese People's Liberation Army Navy. Bigger than when? uh, What are you comparing it to? Well, I'm, I'm comparing it to well, really, any time since the party took power, but but in particular, you know, the the fall of the Cold War and or that the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Soviet Union, we thought, okay, you know, we're entering this new era where we're we don't have these big threats. Uh, but since then, and particularly in the last 10, 15 years or so, uh, we've seen a massive buildup of the Chinese Army, the, the People's Liberation Army, including their Navy, right? And this is should be more apparent uh, to really anyone watching in the U.S. government, uh, in the Navy. So, you know, are are we just not reacting to this? I would say that we've started to react. I think what's going on in Ukraine will probably put paid to the notion that there's not much going on and that we can escape having to make hard decisions. But we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But let me, let me suggest a couple of things about what you just said. First, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, the ground forces, have not grown. In fact, they've shrunk. But more to the point, they've reformed and modernized. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second is, uh, I, as I mentioned, the only examples that I can give since ancient times that uh, even hope to match the buildup of the PLA Navy are the buildup of the Soviet Navy after the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was quite extraordinary also, and our own naval buildup uh, leading up to World War II. And in August of 1945, the U.S., you know, the number that circulates in Washington about how many ships the Navy should have, 350 or so. At the end of the Cold War, the, the mantra was 600 ships. In August of 1945, the U.S. Navy had 6,600 ships. It had three dozen big aircraft carriers and about 150 smaller aircraft carriers. And those had all been built in, the, in four years? Uh, for the most part, yes. Yeah. Some of them were started before the war and came online. Some of them were being built uh, when the war ended. So I've served in two aircraft carriers. The second one was USS Midway, which was designed as the new supercarrier 
and it was commissioned in September 1945, just too late for the war. There were other ships in her class that were canceled on the on the building ways when it became obvious that the war was going to be ended. Was the the war was going to end? That's that seems so surprising to me, since now we can barely get one aircraft carrier built on time and on schedule. Chris, we're just not trying. Hmm. Every time I talk to somebody about this. They say, oh, we could never do that again. Um, There are some amazing stories to be told about the 1930s and 40s defense buildup in the United States. There's nothing magic about it. We had the right people with the right authorities doing the right things. Unfortunately, now uh, we don't have those people. And the workforce has been tremendously uh, decremented. It's it's just you, you know you read the paper just the way I do. It's hard to get people to come to work, uh, and the people who do come to work don't have hard skills. Uh, building ships is not easy, but it's doable. Um, but you know it's so. In any case, um, this uh, the, I, I think um, I think Matt that the point I want to make about your comment is that this is not that different than before. We've In the last hundred years, we've seen this before, and we've seen this sine wave of American challenge and American power and American response. So far, we've always responded fairly well to it. Certainly World War II and the Cold War, and, and there was a naval buildup before World War I also. The Great White Fleet was the manifestation of that, and it's, uh, it's worldwide crews. So we'll see going forward whether the Navy can respond. But it wasn't too long ago, Cold War era, when we had 10 submarines building at a time. Wow. There are pictures, uh, historical pictures in American shipyards down in Pascagoula, for instance, uh, of the, the building ways where you had eight or 10 destroyers side by side, all being built at the same time in, in series construction. We can build shipyards if we don't have enough. We can train shipyard workers. We can do what needs to be done. We just haven't done it. And part of this is because, in my view, the Navy's voice has been muted. It's been uh, by the Navy, in my view. So the commander of the Central Command, where the Navy spent an awful lot of time over the last 20 years, it's not going to come to Washington and say, you've got to fix your shipbuilding problem. Now, the Navy, don't get me wrong, the Navy has talked about its shipbuilding problems. The trouble is it hasn't done anything about it. So um, another of the progenitors of the U.S. Navy maritime strategy in the 1980s, uh, the Honorable John Lehman, the former Secretary of the Navy, whose name is intimately associated with that maritime strategy, and that's the only one that I capitalized, capital M, capital S. <clears throat> he wrote a book with, with his colleague, Steve Wills, just recently. It was, it's an e-book, so you can get it. You don't even have to pay for it. I think the title of it was, Where Are the Carriers? So they are, they took, they've taken on the Navy in the debate about big carriers, and they said that a smaller carrier, for instance, the, the, literally they used this example of my ship, USS Midway. 
a smaller carrier, about 65,000 tons, two hangar bays instead of three, uh, and instead of the larger ships that, that gross about 100,000 tons. That would be sufficient because you could have more of them, number one. Number two, you could um, they could be not nuclear-powered. And the reason they gave for that last thing is telling. The reason is so that you could have competition among the shipbuilders. Because right now, you only have to go to one place to get aircraft carriers built. Uh, and this does not, it just, it just literally doesn't work. It literally doesn't work because the whole competition uh, element has been removed from these very, very important processes. Well, so do you think uh, the fact that China now has the largest navy in the world, that there's the war in Ukraine, is that going to be like the shot of adrenaline that the country needs to get back on track? Well, the Congress is saying that the defense budget is going to uh, is going to increase. Uh, we'll see how it increases and what happens with the money that the Congress provides. Yeah, because throwing uh, money at a problem is not necessarily the same as right. a fundamental shift in saying, okay, our Navy is, how did you put it, the, the single greatest determinant of geopolitics. That's a, a philosophical change that needs to happen. Yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, I'm a navalist. I am. You can take a man out of the Navy, but you can't take the Navy out of the man. And if I could fit into my uniform, I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd go down to the waterfront and look for a ship or a squadron. But um, I wouldn't give the Navy another dollar until they told me what they were going to do with it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. That, I mean, that seems so obvious. Like, before we give you money, you should have a plan for how to use that money. Like, that's okay. just... Now, a navalist, uh, excuse me, a naval officer, a serving officer would be hitting me over the head right now. And he would say, oh, but we tell everybody all the time. I don't think so. Uh, I don't think they tell the country publicly. The Congress is... The, the, the few congressmen who care uh, will routinely point out that the Navy's not telling them what it needs. Now this, again, this is not rocket science. The great congressional architect of the world, the so-called two ocean Navy of World War II was a congressman from a landlocked district in Georgia. Huh. We have an aircraft carrier named after him. His name was Carl Vincent. He was, by the way, Sam Nunn's uncle. So he was referred to as Uncle Carl. Um, he, he, he went to Congress in 1914. In the, he was elected in 1914, got to, got to Washington in 19, early 1915. And he, I guess he looked around and he said, well, I guess I got to be good at something. And he chose the Navy. And uh, thank heavens he did, because he would, for instance, with the Navy in close collaboration, it, it was almost a conspiracy he would organize the Navy's um, testimonies in the key committees in the Congress. That would play out. And then he would literally, he would double what the Navy asked for. It was amazing. It's quite a story. You can read his autobiography and you'll be amazed. But he started this effort because he, was, he was, had the foresight. He started in the early 1930s. Hitler was in power, but... Nazi Germany hadn't become what it was going to be later. 
And he said, uh, in the context of the ar naval arms control treaties of the time, he said, well, you know, we should at least have as many ships as were allowed by treaty. And, you know, those ships should be modern. They should be new ships. And so that whole enterprise of thinking about the fleet, even albeit constrained by treaty limits and so on at the time, started early. And this is a key point, especially for the Navy, but not just for the Navy, because it's, it's also it's geopolitics as well. Whatever is going to happen started way back years ago. So what's happening in China started many, many years ago. There's no consensus yet on when the, the, the Chinese government started preparing for war with the United States. Some people say, well, 2010. Other people, Jim Fennell, who's been on your show, for instance, says, no, 1949. I would say that it's, and I'm not a China scholar, so uh, I could be wrong about this. I would say, though, that it was no later than about the Gulf the time of the first Gulf War, when China saw, remember, China had now chosen to be on our side. We had a, a burgeoning political and economic and defense relationship, lest we forget, with Beijing. But they saw what we did to Iraq, and they, and they got very concerned about that. And they realized, and then, of course, Tiananmen Square came. They had to make a decision whether they were going to suppress democracy or join the, the West. So they joined the WTO, but they didn't join anything else. Uh, I, I don't, get, don't get me wrong. I don't mean that literally. They're, they're all through the international community and controlling the, those institutions because they've been smart about this. It's not just military power. But I would say that it's no later than 1989, 90, 91. So... Uh, whether or not we have the time, given the Russian invasion of Ukraine, to get ready in that long way that we have in the past, we, Franklin Roosevelt spent the 1930s maneuvering the country toward rearmament and preparation. There was no mistake about what he had in mind when he gave his fireside chat on December 29th, 1940 was the, the famous Arsenal of Democracy speech. And he told the country to get ready. That has not happened here. Despite whatever the Navy says about the Indo-Pacific, despite the national security strategy, the national defense strategies put out by President Trump about a year after his inauguration and so on, it really hasn't happened. And other countries, including Russia and China, understand that. They understand that that process has not started. So far, it's been sort of, okay, let's just keep doing what we've been doing, which is number one, not, not correct. And number two, not sufficient. I mean, I, Paul, I just wanted to ask about something you were saying earlier about the, you know, smaller carriers being better. And I'm wondering if we're just a little reliant now on the idea that we have the best technology we have the newest, biggest things like, um, you know, asymmetric warfare, things like that, where like we can outgun or out kind of out technology 
Russia and China. So we have rail guns. It doesn't matter if China has more ships. We, we have we have those elevators on the aircraft carriers that can lift the. Yeah, I mean, up. just thinking right. about your point about we're not doing the preparation. Is Gr- it because we think we are already like we're already like overmatching them? No, I think that's. I don't think what I don't think you're ludicrous, but anybody who thinks that who maintains that is fatuous and feckless and slack-jawed. So I mentioned earlier that some things stay the same and some things change. So uh, military strategists think in terms of the nature of war, and those are the things that just don't change. Human nature, uh, surprise, the fog of war, uncertainty, the way pride and envy uh, overcome common sense, those things are part of the nature of war. Those things don't change. But many things do change. And you're referring, Shelley, to the kinds of things that not only do change, but have changed and are continuing to change that, among other things, um, challenge the aircraft carrier as, uh, as a centerpiece of any naval force. Uh, because there are great vulnerabilities involved. And if you can't defend the carrier, then then the carrier is at great risk. And because it's so expensive, then, you know, you have a real problem. But uh, I would say that the Navy, I, 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 this is, this sounds like a real condemnation, and I suppose it is, and I am on the record. I think the Navy's whistling past the graveyard. So the Navy has bet the farm, literally, on its ability to command and control without interruption. That means that all of the networks that the Navy has set up are going to operate without being decremented or, or interfered with, that they're going to be able to talk to one another, that they're going to be able to share targeting information. This all goes out over frequencies. Uh, and is shared in networks that are very, very fragile. So there are, up until, yes, literally up until yesterday, I was thinking that has to, the two big things that have changed are cyber warfare and space warfare. What I just described, this, this reliance on networks depends completely on the use of the uninterrupted use of space, uh, and until recently, and reality hasn't caught up with concept, or excuse me, reality hasn't caught up with treaties. Space was supposed to be demilitarized. Well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist, again, pun intended, to understand that the next war is going to be fought to, from, through, and in space. So all those communication satellites up there, good luck with that. And then, so that's the, the sort of the structure of these networks. The, the sanctity of the networks, however, is subject to cyber warfare, where either the networks are brought down or they're interfered with, either, and, and you either know that they're being interfered with or you don't know they're being interfered with. And it calls into question every message, every communication that does get through. 
So until just the other day, I was thinking these are the two new things that define changes in addition to hypersonic weapons and so on that define the, the, the most apparent changes to the so-called character of war, all these technologies and so on. But then I realized, and because I'm literally organizing a series of, of articles that are talking about how the Navy has to get ready, I realized that nuclear is back on the table because our friend Vladimir has told us it is. And, you know, and his, <laughs> he gets a vote. He, what he says really counts. Now, the Navy denuclearized, uh, with the exception of the submarine-launched ballistic missiles, in about 1991. And the next sound you heard was the door slamming on the Navy tactical nuclear weapons enterprise. Now, I'm, I know of what I speak because not only was I a nuclear weapons delivery pilot, but I actually dropped one. And it, it was a test. It was a non-explosive test to test the, uh, the fusing of the weapon, which is very complicated because you really want it to go off when you want it to go off and you really don't want it to go off when it, you don't want it to go off. So we, we loaded our P3 up and it carried the, uh, as a tactical exercise, we played it strictly by the rules, a two man rule and everything else. I was under arms with many sea stories to go with that. We don't have time wow. for that, but, uh, um, and we, we flew out to Hawaii and, um, and dropped the weapon on an instrumented range in Hawaii so that they could track and collect all their data and so on. But all of that stopped at the end of the Cold War. And uh, only recently has this issue of nuclear weapons come up again. And guess who's brought it up? Not the Navy. Not It's not the bright idea. Well, of course, I don't know what the Navy's saying internally, but the Navy has not said anything about this. Shinzo Abe has <laughs> brought it up. And so have the South, have South Korean commenters about, well, you know, the Koreans have said, well, I don't think we want American tactical nuclear weapons back on the Korean peninsula because the, when the Navy ended its forward deployment of nuclear weapons, so did, so did we on the Korean peninsula. But you could put them in Guam, couldn't you? Or you could have them on your ships, couldn't you? And uh, Shinzo Abe is making the same, and now out of government, of course, is now making the same kind of suggestions. This, if, if nothing else has gotten our attention, this is an earth-shattering, epical event that a Japanese politician is publicly calling for American nuclear weapons. And they say, well, you know, you share control of nuclear weapons with numbers of European countries. Why don't you do the same with us? Well, I'm not sure that that horse is ever going to get out of the stable in terms of reality in Tokyo. We'll see. But the fact that they're saying this is an indication of how much things have changed. And in the meantime, you'd never know it listening to Admiral's talk. You'd never know it. And I know things are changing. And I think that the impetus of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is going to push things along. We'll see. But if you think about the fact that virtually no 
serving military officer was commissioned yet when the Cold War was still going. Hmm. Because the mandatory retirement is 30 years of service. Now, there are some exceptions to that. And some of the very senior admirals served for longer than 30 years. But the, my point is, there's no body of experience to fall back on. So we've got a lot of work to do. So, you know, we play a game. Uh, what year are we actually in? And some people say 1940. Some people say 1939, 38. I would say about 1920. I don't mean that we're going to have 20 years to get ready, but the fact that the Germans in 1918 turned immediately, 1919, turned immediately to getting ready for World War II. Uh, they literally, this is a great irony of history, they literally conducted secret field exercises in the Western Soviet Union, if you can believe it. Ironic. So one of the great ironies. Yeah. Uh, but it takes a long time to get ready. And if you accept my, my argument that we are not ready and that we haven't been getting ready, then you can kind of date and project out how long it's going to take and so on. But what if we're in 1920, but the world situation is in 1938? Right. And, and it's not, it's not, uh, yeah, exactly. Right. In other words, we're in 1920, but the world is in 1938. I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, I'm curious. You, as an expert in naval strategy, uh, what would you wager to guess is uh, the Chinese Communist Party's plan with its now largest navy in the world? How they're planning to affect global shipping lanes in the South China Sea? Their plans for Taiwan. What do you think their strategy could be? I don't mean to be flippant, but uh, the the um, common response to that is they want to win without fighting, and I think that's probably true. Who wouldn't? But let me let me suggest that you should have on your show an old friend of mine who's really really smart and very experienced and has has really climbed the ladder. His name is Randy Shriver. He's the the, the chairman of the, and the founder and now the chairman after his stint as Assistant Secretary of Defense for East Asia, uh, the Project 2049. And he says, he shares with discussants, the Pentagon, while well, he was in the Pentagon, the secret plan for, for figuring out China. And this is important, and I'll, I'll get to the reason why in a minute. He says, here's a secret plan. I'm going to share it with you. And everybody says, okay, and they get their pen out, new fresh piece of paper, Say, you listen to what they say, you read what they write, and you watch what they do. Now, is it more complicated than that? Of course. But it's not that much more complicated than that. Yeah. I mean, and it's so, interesting you say that because if, if, like, some of the things that I've noticed by looking at, you know, what they've published is, like, basically their, their warfare strategy is they consider themselves to be at war with the United States already, right? And, and they're- If you, they're, if you read what they say and listen to what they say. They're, they're unconventional warfare strategies. Like they're all really out there. Yeah, but, but the, of course, the, the conversation when it comes to China in, the, in Congress and in the media 
generally does not address those things. Look, this is a terrible conundrum for the United States. Every military officer since, I don't know when, uh, since war colleges were founded, have taught what Clausewitz said, which is war is a continuation of policy by other means. Now, what that means is that peace is the normal situation. And war is an interruption of that normalcy. Right. So after the war, we'll get back to peace and we'll continue those policies. This is what the Western canon teaches. It's it's uh, analysts, it's serving officers, it's strategists and so on. The Chinese idea is completely the opposite. It's that we're always at war and once in a while peace breaks out. Hmm. So this this is a terrible problem for us because we can't we simply can't believe it. Not only does it not only does it contradict everything we've been taught, but it goes against our grain because why? What are we? We're liberal Democrats. I don't mean political party. I mean the, the liberal democratic order. That, that's what we believe in. We believe in maintaining the peace. Well, it's a hell of a note when the guy you're trying to talk to or influence has a completely different worldview. So this is why one of the first things that we have to get a lot better at is understanding the Chinese. Now, I don't mean to say that it's as simple as Randy Shriver makes out. He's not trying to deceive anybody. He's brilliant in his simplicity. I will tell you, however, that very, very senior military officers, the two worst days of my professional life have been when two different times widely separated in time, very senior people have said, we just can't figure the Chinese out. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, uh, you know, you mentioned like how we view war and peace in the West and like China is run by communists, right? And like the, the fundamental tenets of Marxism and what China is now, which is Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, Xi Jinping thought with Chinese characteristics for a new era, et cetera. But that, that core of Marxism is about struggle, right? And the idea is that communism is based on continual struggle. And like the communists cannot have a period without some kind of struggle. And this is true internally in China because they're always going after, uh, the party is always struggling against an internal group, right? Whether it's the rightists or the, the intellectuals, the landlords, later the you know democracy students, later it was Falun Gong, now it's the the Uyghurs, uh, it'll be some some new group now, right? And it, that's that's kind of how their political system actually functions, right? It, it's it's based on that struggle, and I think our inability to understand struggle for, uh, from that Marxist perspective makes us think that uh, that we could have a kind of peace with them. Shelley, I think you need to sign Matt up for a section for a segment of this show interview. That's what I've been saying. <laughs> I mean, I think it's it is not just that we fundamentally misunderstand the political system of China too. I think it's that we kind of want the rest of the world to be like us. I mean, I mean we I are think, pretty great. I think you're right, Matt, in that we definitely misunderstand that what what the Chinese Communist Party is, but also 
the Chinese Communist Party, the they've been saying the right things since the 90s, right? In terms of like, oh yeah, like when everybody was arguing that we should help China join the WTO because they, you know, we will get them on the economy first. They'll liberalize the economy, then they'll liberalize politically. They didn't say, oh, no, we are not interested in that. They're like, yeah, yeah, sure, definitely. It'll, it'll totally force us to liberalize politically. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, kind of similarly, when, when Vladimir Putin first came to power, there was a lot of glowing press for him in the U.S. media. And the idea was that, like, oh, here's this you know, okay, sure, he was in the KGB, but he says all the right things. He 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 might even want to join the EU or NATO. Like he said, yeah, sure, yeah, when he was about asked that. about that. Like it's just the, the, they've just been able to, you know, say the right things and we don't, like we, we kind of want to trust them. Right. I mean, and we did, was about 10 years ago, we did the big uh, Russia reset or attempted to, to kind of like fix that relationship because we had this level of trust. I mean, you mean when we used the wrong word in Russian, that Russian reset? I didn't know about that. Yeah. That sums it up perfectly if that's the case. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I, I'm a little bit more cynical than you are, Shelley. I think that a lot of this can be explained eventually, historically, in terms of wanting strong men in charge of China and Russia so that there wouldn't be any problems emerging. Well, the trouble is you can't have one without the other. Uh, um, I think we're learning that now. So then what is the next step? We have Putin talking about nukes invading Ukraine. We have China promising to invade Taiwan. It has the largest Navy in the world. What's next? Um, well, uh, I think we have to get ready for the long game. The ethic of the Navy strategic planners that I admire and, and the presidents and the other military planners and secretaries of defense and so on, who I admire, all understood that if we actually went to war during the Cold War, that everybody would lose. Um, I think President uh, Eisenhower once said something to the effect that the survivors would envy the dead and that we had to work really hard to deter, not to give in, obviously, because the record is clear on that, but that we had to work really hard to deter. Well, that requires a certain strength of character. And let's assume that we still have that. But we don't have the institutional, organizational, or physical capabilities that we once had, first of all. Second, this is the first time that a single competitor can virtually match us in terms of economic power. I think, I think the statistic is that during World War II, combined GDP of Germany, Japan, and Italy was something like, I can't, I can't remember, but it, it doesn't make a difference at this level, that it was either 40% or 60% of our GDP. Well, you know, they couldn't possibly compete under those circumstances. That's not the case with China now. So I think this is going to be a long, long road to hoe. I think that strategies that we put in place now are going to be key because they're going to affect everything else that happens. 
Not that the strategies don't change. Strategies during the Cold War changed. Uh, but you have to pretty much get it right at the outset. In the meantime, we've got a real emergency. The barn is on fire in Ukraine. And there's a great disagreement now in the in the vernacular press and in American analysis whether uh, Putin is in his right mind or not. I personally think he's a maniac, a lunatic, and a megalomaniac, and everything that goes with that, and therefore he's very unstable. This make this just makes it more difficult. It makes a, it a difficult proposition, almost, but hopefully not quite impossible. In the meantime, we've got the Chinese. And I think the, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of writing, some very thoughtful observations about Europe and Russia, Ukraine, NATO, and how to respond to that. There's been far less written about and discussed regarding how all this plays out with regard to Xi Jinping who I think is also a megalomaniac, who wants to change the world no matter what. You know, he's, he has choices. He has choices every day on how he's going to treat his own citizens and how he's going to look at and comport with the rest of the world. And he keeps making choices that are antithetical to uh, our interests. And But I also think antithetical to the... the I believe the constants of the aspirations of human rights and, and the rule of law, free trade, and so on. So this is, uh, we could probably, Grant Newsham has been on your show. Grant Newsham in the context of this AUKUS submarine deal between the U.S., the U.K., and Australia said, you know, the navies are sitting down for an 18-month kind of let's decide what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And he conducted that, ent that, that enterprise in print based on what some really savvy uh, naval officers said. But I think they were Australian, by the way, uh, not American. said, yeah, we could do this, this, this. We'd have that part of it done in an afternoon, not in 18 months. So I think that this strategic planning, which hopefully is going on now, it just isn't that complicated. You have to have a hook so that people, you'll get people's attention. You have to be able to be articulate enough to convince people. But the likes of Carl Vinson and Tom Hayward and John Lehman, uh, they were able to work with presidents uh, the, the success of the maritime strategy depended upon Ronald Reagan declaring in a meeting, he, he sort of interrupted the conversation, and he said something to the effect of, well, I understand that there's some people who are opposed to the Navy's 600-ship maritime strategy. I'm in favor of it. Is anybody here opposed to it? Well, you could you can imagine you could have heard a pin drop in the room when that occurred, and that that was it. That was the end of the argument, and then things happened uh, as I've described, and as others have described far better than I can. So, um, getting the attention of the leadership, in my view, is a navy responsibility. 
just as it is for the Army and just as it is for the Department of Commerce and so on. And, of course, the, the, the problem, the real-world problem is that you've only got one president and you've got every department and every secretary and every constituency clawing at them, pulling on their sleeve, and they have to, they have to choose. They have to choose what their priorities are going to be. In the present instance, it may be that uh, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping are setting those priorities. And it's more apparent than ever that that's, in fact, the reality. So this is a very tough American political problem. Why? Because half the country wants nothing to do with any of this. The country is split right down the middle in terms of domestic policy. And when you're having a fight domestically, it's hard to think over the parapet. It's hard to even look out, let alone come up with uh, with plans and capabilities and investments that are going to deal with something that's, well, you know, it's over the horizon, it's over there. Let's not worry about it. Let's get back to American, to the divisiveness of American politics. And by the way, I say that as a non-political statement, uh, but that's just the reality of where we are now. So it makes it doubly, triply difficult. The, it, the world wasn't like that in 1940 despite the fact that ostensibly um, uh, isolation was American national policy. The world wasn't like that throughout the Cold War, despite the fact that there were plenty of fights, that the way the Vietnam War ended was as political as anything, because it coincided with the demise of President Nixon and so on. So we are missing that component, that component of any palpable, discernible unity useful in the context of national security, which, in other words, internationally. And everybody knows it. Tokyo knows it. Delhi knows it. Belgium, Brussels knows it. Moscow knows it. Beijing knows it. And so on. Anybody who counts knows it. So uh, there are no guarantees. We're used to being kind of in charge. We're used to being uh, successful. And anybody who looks around can see how that's not working out so well for us these days. So dealing with China, building up the Navy or not, so on, all of these things are very much uh, on the table, but definitely unresolved. I thought it was interesting what you were saying about you know, half the country not wanting anything to do with this because, you know, when I was asking you about the whole, are, do we just think we're better than everybody else? Like our, our, our military is just bigger, et cetera. I think if you just asked any, you know, you went, you know, did the whole thing or you just walked down the street and asked people, what do you think about the U.S. military? Like, do, are we, is there a threat to us in the world, et cetera? I think most people will say that, you know, there's we're, if anything, too big, right? Like we're spending too much money on the military, et cetera. And I wonder if um, this is something that is because the American people haven't been communicated with the way that you were saying before in terms of like FDR having his fireside chats or if it's that there hasn't been something to kind of shock us the way that 9-11 has 
uh, had did 20 years ago uh, to change how we did things and like what does it what do we need essentially to try to unite the country again first of all i agree with everything you just said and inferred um if the invasion of ukraine isn't sufficient i don't know what's going to be so in that sense I I say this advisedly, obviously, but maybe uh, Putin has done us a favor by pulling the covers off of, you know, where he where he stands and what he's trying to do. Um, But, you know, there's no telling whether it's too late or so on. This is the big uh, the big question in my mind is whether we're up to it, first of all, and whether or not we have time to do what has to be done. It takes time. What do you think we can do now to take advantage of the Russia-Ukraine timing to shore up our uh, power in the Pacific vis-a-vis China? I, I think uh, it's a uh, – again, I use the term advisedly. It's a good story to tell and it has to be told well. That's the first thing. The second is that these are not separate things. This is a global situation. You've got exactly what we haven't wanted for the last 130 years or more. We haven't wanted there to be um, an antithetical coalition in Eurasia. And now there is. So if we're going to stick with that, then we have to tell that story, say why it's important, connect the Moscow-Beijing dots and start uh, articulating, and I, I, I wish I could do a better job at this, of how Xi Jinping and uh, is going to advantage and collude with what's going on in Ukraine and in, in Moscow and, and with Putin. Uh, when when uh, described in those terms, if done properly, this raises the level, should raise the level of threat and anxiety and requirement to a point where perhaps, perhaps we can overcome our basic lack of preparedness and divisions at home. Perhaps. Remember, in 1938, the French would just as soon fight with each other than with the Germans. And uh, that really ensued almost literally throughout uh, World War II. So there's no guarantee we're going to get this right. Um, American American solidarity and unity uh, comes has come often enough, but it's by no means been eternal or consistent. Yeah. Yeah, France in World War II is definitely not the model the U.S. should have done. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just that they lost, but they made some bad bets. So they they decided militarily to concentrate on fortifications and stability on the battlefield and centrality of command. Um, and unfortunately, that didn't work out for them. At the same time, politically, they were so divided, the left and the right in France, that they couldn't come together to decide what 
to do and whether or not to do anything with regard to the Germans. And then, of course, the rest, of, as they say, is history. My gosh, we are France in World War II. No. Well, I mean... It's, it's, an, it's an interesting comparison. I, I was thinking when you were talking, Paul, about the Space Force and how obviously the next war is going to be a space war and how much sense it made when you put it that way that, like, of course, people are going to be destroying satellites, etc. And yet when the whole idea that a U.S. should have a space force was proposed by Trump, um, it was just like treated like a joke. Essentially. And I think part of that was because obviously like half the country doesn't like Trump. But what did it become? It became a Netflix TV show about, you know, the incompetence of the U.S. government, essentially. I mean, it seemed cool when Neil deGrasse Tyson proposed it like 10 years earlier. Right. People thought, oh, that sounds good. I don't know if people thought that. I think people just were surprised that he came out and basically said, no, it's a good idea when Trump said it. Yeah. Like, I don't think people thought it was cool 10 years before when Neil deGrasse Tyson said it, because I don't think people think anything to do with a military buildup in the U.S. is cool right now. No, that's that's maybe true. I'll probably spend the rest of my professional life trying to make the Space Force a naval force. We'll see how far I get with that. Well, so one of the things you mentioned earlier uh, about the sort of vulnerability of our networks in space and our cyber networks which of course are linked, you know, we could have the, the the biggest, bestest naval fleet in the South China Sea and in the technical Pacific. Technical term. The bestest is technical. It means the number one absolute bestest. Uh, we, we could have the bestest and then the communications go out, right? Uh, but is there like a, is there like a World War II era communication strategy that we could have as like a backup in place that would allow us to operate without the sort of technology that could be knocked out by the Chinese rocket force or whatever? Um, first, I'm not sure, because I'm not a technical expert. I majored in history, but I, so I know some of the history. In World War II, the closest corollary would be the command and control of the submarine forces where there was very little, um, some, but uh, relatively little transmission on the part of the submarines because they were vulnerable, but a lot of command and control from fleet headquarters. Mm. So they could receive it, but they, they wouldn't send the signals. Yeah, and I don't want to overstate that because there, there, there was some transmission, but when the it became increasingly obvious the vulnerability of submarines that were transmitting on the radio. The, the, the uh, at, at, in fact, as it turned out, the Germans kind of never figured that out. And we took them apart because not only were they, were these messages going out, but we were reading the codes. So that's part of it too. Uh, so their communications were terribly vulnerable to our code-breaking efforts uh, that we and the Brits were very successful at, including with the, with the Japanese. And so we were, as an example, reading the cables being sent back to Tokyo from Berlin by the Japanese ambassador to Germany, who would be called in and briefed on what Hitler was thinking. And then basically Washington and London would know about that before the rest of the German high command. It worked out pretty well. Uh, I don't know exactly what the analogy is going to be now, but there are 
I think maybe the lesson here is that there are these wars going on in, in the airwaves. And that's going it's, to, it's, some of it's going to be deception, some of it's going to be interruption, some of it's going to be exploitation, and so on. Uh, cyber is more than that, but, and, and, but also so are our networks, all of which can be either fortified or not, and, and leveraged or not, and so on. I think, however, that prudent commander would think of operating without them, without resorting to them. Okay, and I don't, I don't know, but it looks to me like uh, every time you hear a, a naval officer. I shouldn't say every time because I don't track it that closely, but they keep repeating. No, we got these networks and and our strategies, our capabilities are all dependent upon, you know, this network. And now we're doubling down on that. So the idea of of a fleet uh, broadly dispersed, well, in order to avoid, supposedly avoid, you know, a single uh, blow defeating blow, decapitating blow. Well, the problem with that is that that increases even more your dependency on these networks, especially especially when uh, 150 or 200 or more of these vessels, I guess, are going to be unmanned. Well, you know, artificial intelligence hasn't been proven in the first instance, let alone going forward, and you're going to have to be telling these vessels what to do constantly. So this is this is a technical problem that hasn't been sorted out. Right. I'm not sure I'd want to enable an AI run destroyer, for example. Would we want to authorize an unmanned destroyer to open fire on a target? None of this has been worked out. The Navy is it bet its its future on it. Well, really, like the message I'm getting from you is that like right now, the U.S. Navy reigns supreme on the seas <laughs> as long as no one challenges it. <laughs> uh, it's been it's been challenged. Uh, increasingly, it, it's increasingly obvious that it's been challenged. I wrote the first unclassified analysis of the anti-ship, the mobile land-based anti-ship ballistic missile. Uh, put together by China. That was sort of the death knell of those presumptions of the Navy being supreme, and it become the centerpiece. It's not the only part of it, obviously, but it's the centerpiece of the so-called anti-axis area denial Chinese strategy. I've seen not much from the Navy that has, has in any convincing way, of course, much of this, some of this at least, probably most of it, it's highly classified technically, right? But the Navy needs to tell us. The Navy needs to ensure that we're not putting good money after bad uh, in in uh, whatever naval acquisitions and uh, operations we charter. But no, so I, I, I know you were kidding, but no, I, I wouldn't say that at all. That's the point. I think that's the fundamental point. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that at all. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and helping get the word out about the situation. Um, I mean, I think it is encouraging what you said about, um, you know, 
it's it's essentially not too late. It's there's still time for people to wake up. And as World War II, as an example, as long as we're not being France, we can ramp up production and handle the challenges that are ahead of us. I like to think so, but time is a dimension here. It's an important dimension, and whether or not we have time, and also how we use it. So, uh, it, some people, I, I, I'm not. I don't like to say it's too late because then I just pull my covers up over my head. Uh, but it's, it's pretty late. <laughs> Maybe we can make a really fast about face the way that Germany did in like two days. Well, and you know, this, that's instructive actually, Shelley, thank you for bringing that up because who would have thought who, who would have thought you could, you could have made a lot of money betting on the Germans uh, last week. Because yeah, for clarity, we're talking about Germany now, not Germany World War II. C- correct, correct. Just for the audience, and so, um, but the Japanese are doing the same thing now. So the Japanese are understanding that they're a frontline state. They've always been a frontline state, but now they're kind of accepting the, the implications of that. Uh, I think. Part of the basis for uh, Shinzo Abe's uh, statements regarding nuclear weapons reflects that neuralgia, that increasing sense of discomfort and unease and strategic uh, vulnerability. Uh, they're, they're in a terrible situation because they depend upon China for their economics and they depend upon us for their security. And so uh, we'll see to what extent Ukraine changes that quotient, uh, we'll see. But they also have the, the perspective of actually having learned something from World War II, that they're never going to do that again, just as the Germans ostensibly had, I think, reasonably so. Because uh, in each country, we burned down more than 60 cities in each country in the course of World War II. Talk about civilian casualties. Uh, you could look it up, it's that many. Because the, the philosophy was, well, sooner or later, they're just gonna give up. Sooner or later, we're, we're gonna literally displace the, the working population, the workforce. Uh, as it turns out, it, it didn't, didn't happen, but that was the idea. So they didn't ever wanna do that again. And so despite the hard pacifist element in Japan, Shinzo Abe is saying this. That, that's some indication of how far we've gone down the road toward another Cold War and also reflecting Japan's insecurity in that regard and with regard to us, their own, ostensibly their only ally and so on. Um, an awful lot has changed in Japan. We could have a whole other session on how much has changed in Japan since I was the senior country director in the office of the Secretary of Defense? That would be very interesting. But yeah, things are changing incredibly quickly. History is being made. Right. So once again, thank you for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. Pleasure has been all mine. You know, Shelley, something you mentioned, uh, like, really resonated with me. Something about how, uh, you know, the... People think the U.S. military, if anything, is too big. 
that they might not be, you know, aware of the challenge. And it makes me think of that saying, you know, it'll be a great day when schools get all the money they need, but the military needs to hold a bake sale to... That's a saying? Yeah, you never it's heard like of it? like a bumper sticker kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. It will be a great day when our schools get all the money they need and the Air Force has to hold a bake sale to buy a bomber. And oh. wh what that, you know, I heard that, like, I remember hearing that in grade school. I've heard my entire life. That's what happens when you grow up in California, I yeah, guess. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. But then, like, I remember hearing, like, we did this, we mentioned this on a recent episode, and I didn't know about this before, but in Ukraine in 2014, the Ukrainian military was so corrupt that they actually had to have bake sales to get funding yeah. for their military as Russia was eating up their country. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a combination of, like, they're incredibly underfunded, so... People were selling equipment for money. Like yeah. they were selling off the military equipment. So they had like a bunch of like really old decrepit equipment. It was corrupt because it was underfunded, a bunch of different things. And they literally held uh, a bake sale. Yeah. Well, it isn't just about the money. It's that we can't just throw money at our military either. Like our military and our Navy need a strategy. And so yes, schools, well, that is true. Right? That, 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 that is that what is Paul true. was saying, right? Right. So he wouldn't give it the Navy another dollar. Yeah. But, but the, the bigger issue is like this fundamental, like the, no one is going to get more money or there's going to be no push for a bigger strategy if like the American people are still operating under this notion that, you know, the U.S. military, the U.S. is the biggest aggressor in the world and that we live in a world where if we just gave up our military, everything would be peaceful. That we, where people don't factor in that there are strong men like Putin, Xi Jinping, who will step into that power vacuum left by the U.S. gladly. Yeah, this is the whole why does the U.S. need to be the world police thing? Mm -hmm. Why don't we just give it up, right, and let someone else do it? Or the world doesn't need one. Well, I mean, the the world does need police the way that, you know, a city needs police. Someone's going to fill that role. So the question is, does America step into that role or does Russia or China step into that role? And they actively want that role. And like, what's better, a country where the government and the military is beholden to a free press of free people or China or Russia, where like Russia, you criticize Putin, you get poisoned. Yeah, I think there's a weird feeling, like it's almost like the left and right are in this country are opposite in some ways where like the left is like, oh, well, China doesn't really, they're not a threat. And then the right is like, well, Russia is not a threat. And then- I've, I've heard- Different things on like, it seems to cross party lines. Actually, I've seen. But anyways, you're yeah, yeah. I mean, I, mean, we I say don't... Putin looks great shirtless on a horse, and other people say Xi Jinping looks great shirtless on a horse. I don't Direct think. I do think that it does cross part. I the, this seems to be a bigger problem with people feeling like the U.S. leadership is out of touch, and they're being lied to by the media. So, you know, when the Russia started invading Ukraine, you suddenly saw a lot of people being like, well, I don't trust CNN. So if they're saying this is happening, how how do I know that it's true? Mm -hmm. um, th this is how you get people who think that like COVID, it wasn't even real. Like there was no actual disease. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I saw someone say, Russia's the only country in the world that doesn't have a Rothschild bank. What's really going on? Wake yeah. up. Yeah. So like there, there are people who are like so focused on specific things because they feel like they've been 
lied to, which you can see kind of how they get to these places where they're mm-hmm. like, I don't really know who to trust, right? There's just this breakdown of institutional trust. Psychological warfare. And then, but then you end up being like, yeah, the guy who's poisoning people and invading another country and working with the Chinese Communist Party is the good guy. Like yeah. that's like where you end up and it's become it becomes like you're you're suddenly a Russian tanky, you know, the way that some people on the left are tankies for the Chinese Communist Party. There's a lot of mental gymnastics that happen. And I think that's that is a worrying symptom of like larger issues within uh, you know the American society that if there is no trust in what you're being told by anybody how do you how do you unite anybody yeah. right well, and that's one of the issues that like you know paul was mentioning how like the us navy has not done a good job telling the american public what is needed mm-hmm. or or the president or you know it's not it's not necessarily just the navy's job but like there were things like i mentioned earlier the whole thing about treating the space fork as a giant uh, force as a giant joke because the spake fork <laughs> The space fork. Are you trying to make a joke out of the space fork, Shelly? Force. Uh, Yeah, I I guess I was trying to make a joke. We can use the space fork during the bake sale. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, the idea that, you know. That's a t-shirt now, by the way. We can't take things seriously. I mean, I guess that's, sometimes we don't take things seriously, but, you know, in a way that makes a point. What? (laughs) Well, I mean, I feel like sometimes you guys don't take me seriously. That's true, too. Yeah, although there are often valid reasons for that. Shelly, you had a uh, point about the spake fork? (laughs) (laughs) I had a point about us not taking things seriously. But you, but that was that you had a point before. Oh, that just that, um, you know, it was a joke because it happened to be Trump Mm. who suggested it, right? Yeah, yeah, that was shocking to me. Like, because after World War II, the maybe a lot of people don't know this, but the I don't even know how to say it, but like essentially the Air Force was part of the army, and then it was spun off into its own branch, the Air Force. Uh, you know, currently space operations are kind of under the U.S. Air Force. It kind of makes sense to spin it off into a space force, and yet it was treated like the most ridiculous thing when you know. Space warfare is already here. Uh, China practices blowing up satellites in space. I think it's because we don't really think, you know, when you think of space warfare, do you think like pew, 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 you know, like. uh, I I do. So it's just, it, it, it is again, feeling like that's not real or serious or a real thing because we haven't communicated that, hey, this is what's happening. Well, yeah, because, because it's, it's fundamentally a different type of like operation like the the army operates on the ground the navy operates in the sea the air force operates in the air and the space force also operates on the ground but controlling stuff that's in orbit right so like this that's like it just feels really different in terms of what it actually does and maybe you know 50 years from now there'll be the kind of pew 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 lasers in space um which would be awesome and terrifying but that's just not where we are now but we still have to have that preparation I was thinking about something before you said the pew 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 thing, and now I can't remember it well, anymore. But I think the the issue is, oh, this was it. People don't want to talk about war. Like, what government wants to tell its people, hey, we got to prepare for a war? Uh, China. Right? China. Russia. 
They, they love that. Mm. Like they're all, they're talking about that all the time. You know, look at the Chinese internet trolls. They love the talk of war, the strong country. They love the talk of their military becoming stronger. Yeah. They don't love the talk of, there's no like, hey, this is the thing right now with Russia and Ukraine, right? Where the Ukrainians are doing a pretty good psychological warfare thing by letting the captured Russian soldiers call their moms. Oh, yeah, I saw that. And being like, hi, mom, I'm in Ukraine. What? Like, mm -hmm. just because people are being fed that type of, like, nationalism about a strong military, et cetera, et cetera, but nobody wants to talk about the realities of war. And I think another issue is, like, it's like you mentioned, like, people just assume that the U.S. is so dominant. The idea that like, oh yeah, we have rail guns, it doesn't matter. You know, China has the biggest Navy in the world. We're just unchallengeable. And that is unfortunately putting us into a very dangerous position. Where yeah, it's like you said, if anything, it's too big. Yeah, no, I've definitely heard that from so many people, right? Like, oh, well, why do we need a big military, et cetera? And we've made jokes about, you know, defense spending and things like that. I mean, the money they spend on the spake fork is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm just imagining a giant fork now, like What's like orbiting the Earth. It's like a like a spaceship, a fork, a fork <laughs> shaped spaceship. But what makes it this? What was it? The spake? What's a spake? I don't know. Yeah, we'll have to figure that out for the t-shirt design. <laughs> Let us but, know in the comments below. <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, That's not going to be a good t-shirt. No one's going to get it unless they watch this very specific. We, we're making it for us. Okay. We can do <laughs> um, that. But yeah, it, this is where the general public needs to understand that this is a cold war, that there are authoritarian forces struggling against liberal democracies to be the dominant powers. And unless we actually stand up and fight for our values... It doesn't have to be militarily necessarily. Ideally, we prevent that from happening. But unless we shore up our own morale and say, hey, you know, liberal democracies have a culture that is worth fighting for and that is good. Yeah. I mean, I think somebody said this during the podcast that Russia and China are watching. I think it was Paul, right? Russia and China are watching us be, uh, you know, divided and all this stuff. And then, you know, what they did recently in the, that joint statement that they issued back in February, not only did they say that they have like this friendship without limits, et cetera, they also said, you know, we are the real democracies, essentially. Mm -hmm. There was a whole section about how, you know, some people want to say that democracy is just, you know, there's only one type of democracy. And that's not true. Like, you know, democracy, whether a country is a democracy should be, you know, judged by the people of that country. It's straight out of the CCP's new thing where they want to kind of claim that they're a democracy. Yeah. Well, this this goes back to a lot of, um, you know, communist tactics of like, you know, destroying meaning of words. Orwell talked about in 1984, like if you eliminate definitions and meaning, then things can be anything. Hey, democracy, it'll just be... Yeah, anything, you know, is a democracy. It's it's a democracy because we say so. Mm-hmm. No. The people's dictatorship. Oh, democratic dictatorship. Democratic. Yeah. Sorry, I haven't memorized my Chinese fake constitution. Um, but, yeah, so this is a message that definitely needs to get out there more. The And as, as Paul said, maybe Putin has done us all a very big favor. 
by showing that there are real consequences to the idea of appeasement or just kind of ignoring the problem. Like it leads ultimately to Russia invading Ukraine. It will ultimately lead to China invading Taiwan. And And then, then, yeah. I mean, one of the things I found interesting was Singapore sanctioned Russia because they said small nations... We don't want to get, we don't want to be used as pawns by bigger nations. But if we don't stand up for other small nations, then the whole idea that we deserve to be small nations is in question, right? So I feel like they're a little bit worried about China. That's that's pretty impressive for Singapore. For Singapore, right? Which also has friendly relations with Russia. So it's not that they're naturally like going to ally with Ukraine on this. It's just that they see a very existential threat to themselves. The way that Germany suddenly was like, oh, crap. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there could be another war in Europe. We better actually up our defense spending and uh, send some weapons to Ukraine. Instead of letting the U.S. pay for everything. Yeah. So it's just like the suddenly Europe started to take the, this, the seriousness of what was happening led to all these like sudden about faces, right? I mean, if we're not careful, you know, Putin has said nu- the nuclear option is kind of back on the table. We don't want to have to... Have our descendants surviving out there on the spake fork. <laughs> Thank you for watching China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And we'll see you in the 21st century on the spake fork. It's already the 21st century. Yeah. It's already the spake fork. Yeah, we're, that's why I said we're see, we'll see you. Okay. Because we're not going to see them in the 22nd century. You never know. That's true. I'll be a robot. Goodbye. <laughs>